trust and obey. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. In our last study, we were introduced more fully to the man called Saul of Tarsus. He is an enemy of the kingdom of God. He is a deceived man who is using his vast talents, abilities, and advantages, driven by intense, though misguided, passion and conviction, to oppose the name of Jesus Christ and all who call on it. He has effectively exterminated the Hellenistic Jewish movement in Jerusalem and has turned his attention elsewhere, seeking to utterly annihilate the movement from the earth. Acts 26.11 says that Saul, by his own testimony, persecuted the followers of Jesus even to foreign cities. As we noted in our last study, that seems to indicate there were several such places he went in pursuit of the scattered refugees. And if he really wanted to put an end to the Christian way, this would be essential. Because Luke tells us those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, Acts 8 and verse 4, and that by virtue of Saul's persecution, the kingdom of God had already extended into Samaria and was beginning to break into the uttermost parts of the earth. At some point, Saul went to the high priest and other chiefs and leaders among the Jews and asked letters and a commission from them to the synagogues of Damascus, the ancient capital of Syria, located 120 miles northeast of Jerusalem, so that if he found there any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound in chains to Jerusalem for trial and presumably for execution if they would not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. So Damascus, a city populated by around 40,000 Jews with between 30 and 40 synagogues, giving plenty of opportunities for evangelism to the Christians, became Saul's next target, but it would also be his last. Verse 3, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. There's no indication that he was on horseback or camelback or in a wagon or chariot. In fact, the latter statement that he was led by the hand indicates that he and his companions were traveling on foot. So it was likely five or six days into his trip there are a few options for how the journey was taken, but we cannot be for certain which one it was. It is difficult to gauge what his frame of mind might have been. 
McGarvey supposes that this point in the journey was specifically chosen because it gave time for Saul's passions to cool so that he might be more open to reason through the things that were about to take place. Others have suggested that coming near Damascus would mean that he could see the city, which might have reignited the furies had they subsided. And that would have made this a particularly striking hour to bring him under conviction. He was taken in the very act, as we might say. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. In Acts 26.13, we learn that this event took place at the noon hour, when the sun was at its zenith, and especially in the Syrian desert, its brightest. But Saul says in that same verse that the light from heaven was brighter than the sun. If we're careful Bible students, this might remind us of the transfigured appearance of Jesus, where the gospel writers say that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, Matthew 17 and verse 2. And not only that, but the more ancient scenes that the transfiguration itself invoked of what Bible scholars call theophanies, manifestations of the glory of God. In 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13, David said that when the glory of God was manifest, it was so bright that it kindled coals before it. In this case, it would have likely killed Saul, and in time it did blind him. I believe the only reason that he did not become blind or even die immediately was a supernatural restraint that enabled him to look into the light for a very special purpose. Verse 4 says that when the light shone around him, enveloping him, and according to Acts 26, 13, those who were with him, and shutting out the world, then he and all the others, Acts 26, 14, fell to the ground. Falling to the ground is a standard reaction to coming into the presence of God. These men had no idea what or who they were encountering, but it seems more of the essential consequence of entering such majesty and glory than a thoughtful response. Mouths are stopped and knees cannot help but bow. Luke says that as they fell to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Now there are two very interesting and noteworthy points to be made about this voice and what it says. First, in Acts twenty-six fourteen. Saul says that the voice spoke to him in the Hebrew language. So even without the general introduction of God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that connection to the ancient covenants is immediately implied by the language spoken. Second, the voice calls out with the double repetition of Saul's name as when God called to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Bullinger says that this formula is used to signify the great solemnity and sacredness of the occasion. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This question was not asked because the speaker was confused or lacked understanding of the situation. This speaker was the one who searches the hearts and has no need that anyone should testify of men because he knows what is in the man. When God comes to bring a sinner under conviction— he often exposes our guilt and cuts through our dullness or our facades of self-delusion and justification with questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Why has your countenance fallen? Where is your brother? Now, 
Why are you persecuting me? The order of the words places the emphasis on me. Why, Saul, do you persecute me? What have I done to anger you and stir up such hatred in you? Saul did not immediately perceive what we as readers know, that the speaker was Jesus. The language suggests that to this point he did not see any person, simply the bright light. And when he responds with the question, Who are you, Lord? The word Lord is simply a term of respect, such as sir or master, as he is obviously in the presence of someone great. Had he known who asked him this question, and had he, like Job, been allowed to offer some argument against the claim of God, he might have defended himself by asserting that he had never even met Jesus. He was not involved in the crucifixion. He had not slapped him or spat upon his face. But he was persecuting the message of Jesus and the people of Jesus. And to Jesus, that meant he was persecuting him. Listen. If we attack or injure either the truth of Christ or the church of Christ, Christ will take that attack personally. In Acts 26, 14, this question is followed by another. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? These words have been interpolated into Acts 9 later as a statement in some manuscripts. And that shows up in the New King James Version, but the evidence supports that they belong at this place— and they should be understood as a question. The expression, kick against the goads, was an ancient proverb throughout the Greek and Latin-speaking world. It referred to the old method of moving an ox down the road by means of a sharp piece of metal fastened to the end of a heavy stick. The driver would poke the ox slightly to inflict just a mild pain, but the implication was that if it did not move, the injury would be much worse. Sometimes an especially stubborn ox would do the opposite of what the goad was designed to motivate. It would kick back against it. When the ox kicked against the goads, it would only injure itself. And this is the meaning of the expression. Sometimes people engage in a battle with a perceived enemy, but in the end they only bring harm on themselves. And so it was with Saul of Tarsus. It is strange, but it bears some discussion that such a thoughtful and reasonable commentator as J.W. McGarvey forcefully contended that this expression meant that Paul had a guilty conscience from the time of the stoning of Stephen and that he was wrestling with inner struggles about the identity of Christ and the legitimacy of the Christian system. Now, this seems completely unacceptable to me for two reasons. First, the whole record to this point says differently. Saul's wrath and hatred against the church only seems to be growing more and more. I see no indication of even a pause, much less an uncertainty or inner struggle. Second, and perhaps most meaningful, is Saul's own testimony of his pre-conversion experience. While in Romans chapter 7 he does confess a struggle with sin and guilt and the lust of the flesh, whenever he speaks of his life before this occasion— As concerned his understanding of Jesus, he describes himself always as ignorant. In fact, he explicitly says that it was because of his ignorance and unbelief of the Messiahship of Jesus that he obtained mercy for the evil things he did, 1 Timothy 1.13. In Acts 26.9, Saul says that he thought he must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he actually believed up to this point that he was doing God's service, 
in persecuting Christians and opposing the message of Jesus. Now, this ignorance and unbelief did not justify Saul. Elsewise, it would not have been necessary for him to even obtain mercy. But it caused Jesus to be compassionate toward him and to seek him for himself. The Bible says that Jesus is compassionate to all of us who are ignorant and going astray. Hebrews 5.2 and 4.15, because of his sympathies toward us through the Incarnation. So if it was not struggling with a guilty conscience, what did this question, is it hard for you to kick against the goads, mean? Some suggest that it referred to Saul's resistance of grace in his effort to keep the law of Moses. He was kicking against the grace of God that was revealed in Christ and thus consigning himself to judgment for his sins. But I suggest that a likely meaning is that Saul believed he was defending the ancient faith of Moses and the prophets and the God of Israel, but in fact he was warring against all that Moses and the prophets anticipated and worked for and prayed for and hoped for, the very Son of God himself. In persecuting Christ, Saul was assaulting what he loved and honored most of all. But he does not yet understand this. And he said, Who are you, Lord? Who is saying this to me? What could this mean? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At this point, the narrator subtly informs us that Saul encountered more than a voice from the light. He saw the risen Lord Jesus. We'll have more to say on this in a moment. The New King James Version of Acts chapter 9 and verse 6 begins with the words, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? These lines have also been judged by the textual critics as an interpolation to the chapter. Like most interpolations, they pose no serious threat to Christian theology. In fact, they speak what is certainly truth. In his own records of the event, Saul does not record his own trembling astonishment, but how could he have had any other reaction? As McGarvey described the psychological reel this must have put on him, it is impossible for us, who have been familiar with the glory of the risen Christ from infancy, to fully realize the thoughts and feelings which flashed like lightning into the soul of Saul on hearing these words. Up to this moment, he had held Jesus to be an imposter, cursed of God and man, and his followers blasphemers worthy of death, but now this hated being is suddenly revealed to him in a blaze of divine glory. The evidence of eyes and ears cannot be doubted. There he stands with the light of heaven and the glory of God around him, and he says, I am Jesus. Stephen was right, and I have shed innocent blood. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The die is cast, the proud spirit yields, and the current of that mighty soul is turned back in its channel to flow forever, deeply and strongly, in the opposite direction. Even though Acts 9 originally admitted the question, What shall I do, Lord? To which the rest of the verse 6 is an answer. It is present in Acts 22 and verse 10. And it's worthy of our serious consideration, what did it mean? At this point, then, we need to ask why all of this is happening. While some people in the modern world will claim to have these sorts of encounters, and 
Some will claim them in a way and to a degree that would make them common and mundane. Most honest and serious-minded Christians would say that nothing like this has ever happened to them. But they may wonder why it has not. Once a man called out to a preacher during a revival, Why haven't I had an experience like Saul on the Damascus Road? The preacher quickly responded, Because God don't shoot buckshot at snowbirds. If you have ears to hear it, that's a pretty good answer. Something extraordinary was happening here, and we need to identify it before continuing in our study to understand why God did something so remarkable. It seems reasonable to call this a case of conviction. I'm not sure if it would have been possible to bring Saul out of his spiritual blindness by any other means. He had already been exposed to gospel preaching by no less than Stephen himself, but he evidently did not listen, because he was able to continuously identify as an ignorant unbeliever. His passions were so charged and his intentions so set that it may have been that the only other option than something like this was to strike him dead. What keeps me back from this interpretation is that Jesus told the apostles that conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit, and that this work takes place through preaching. So if this was part of the reason for all these things, it represented something altogether unique, an exception to the norm for the greater purpose of God. I'm quite certain that we should not call the Damascus Road encounter a case of conversion. And I do not reach this conclusion merely because of the absence of baptism at this point, although that is a serious issue based on all the examples and teachings we've seen thus far, but because of the greater nature of the case. For one thing, when Paul asks the question, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord's answer is, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. You see, it was not the place, even of Jesus Christ himself, to circumvent the role of a human preacher in conversion as laid out in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. Not one word was spoken to Saul on the road regarding the forgiveness of his sins. But we shall see shortly that when he goes into the city, he is told by a preacher what he must do to wash his sins away, Acts 22.16. So this event is not to be regarded as the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But if we allow Jesus himself to explain the situation, we will call this the commission of Saul of Tarsus. Although the narrative in Acts 9 does not include it, in Acts 26, verses 16-18, we learn that after Jesus told Saul to go into the city to learn how to be saved, he continued to speak to him about their remarkable meeting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Listen very carefully now. Jesus is explaining why the light, why the apparition of the risen Lord, why the voice from heaven. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of things which I will yet reveal to you. You'll remember this language of being a witness from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 and again in 1 verse 22, when the apostles were given their commission by Jesus and when the replacement was selected for Judas. 
Jesus goes on, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. This is the verb form of the word apostle. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When Matthias was selected to replace Judas, Peter said that one was needed for the ministry and apostleship to be a witness of the resurrection, Acts 1 and verse 25. Here, Jesus says, I have appeared to you in my resurrected body for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness. In 1 Corinthians 15, 4-8, Saul says that Jesus rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, after that by over five hundred brethren at once, after that he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles, then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. Listen carefully to these words. Jesus and Saul himself tell us that this experience was not to convert him to Christ, but to qualify him and call him into apostleship. This was not in any respect a normative experience for conversion. It was the last time this sort of appearance happened, or would happen, because this was something extraordinary. Paul, the last of the apostles, had been specially prepared by the providence of God from his mother's womb, so he said in Galatians chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, As the apostle by which the kingdom of heaven would initially and effectively break through the wall of separation into the nations, and finally into the uttermost parts of the world, and now he was being called out and suited for the amazing work God had long intended for him. Verses 7 through 9. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. This is sometimes charged as a discrepancy against Saul's own account in Acts 22 and verse 9, where he says, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, because they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So one account says they heard the voice, the other says they did not hear the voice. John Haley, in his classic work, Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible, makes short work of this one. By rightly observing that the Greek akouo, like our word here, carried two meanings, to perceive sound or to understand it. The men who were with Saul hear the sound in the first sense, but they did not understand what was said to him. This is certainly the resolution, and it's in keeping with other occasions when a voice from heaven was not understood by all who heard the noise. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. As Peterson well states, the supernatural impact on the natural as Saul was blinded. But there is also a symbolic aspect to this light. Saul is forced by the Messiah's light to recognize his own blindness and to receive his sight through him. Henceforth, Paul, as a minister of the gospel, will shine the light of the glory of Christ into the hearts of deluded men and take away their spiritual blindness, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Here, as this part of our narrative closes, we see further evidence that Saul was not saved on the Damascus road. 
Later, with the new identity, he will write in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But at the present, Saul has no peace, only anguish, grief, and brokenness as he mournfully realizes his sin and condemnation before the God of heaven. But we need not despair for him. Again, drawing from his own words at a later time, Christ had begun a good work in him and is certain to complete it. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey.